Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messina. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have Casey Candela and Andrew Seeger as our guests. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. It's great to have you. Casey and Andrew are the hosts of a prickly politics podcast called Women in the Room, and it's produced by WFUV News, which is an NPR affiliate in the Bronx. And the Women in the Room podcast is a deep dive into the history of sexual harassment in the New York State Legislature. Uh, so, Casey and Andrew, thank you for for being on Miranda Warnings. What was the idea for this podcast as a series about sexual harassment in the New York State Legislature? Sure. So, we had just finished up the third season of Prickly Politics the second season, rather, which was covering uh, the race for governor last year. And so we were wrapping up our political coverage and we wanted to do a bit of a more investigative deep dive series. And as we were looking into some of the major problems in Albany, in the New York state legislature in general, one thing that kept popping up and up was this sort of deep culture of sexual harassment. There was a lot of scandal going on, a lot of just you know, shady characters who were running our government. And, you know, the more we started to look into it, we realized that there is this long, deep history of scandal, of sexual harassment, of cover up. And, you know, we started to put together the story and we realized it's not just one or two instances here. It's a real deep history of this culture. Right. And there was an advocacy group who was still active, the Sexual Harassment Working Group, who authored a white paper um, to, you know, advocate for changes in the law. And they had been harassed in the legislature. And we kind of said, you know, this is interesting. We saw them campaigning with, you know, attorney general candidates and, and things like that when we were covering the election. And we thought, oh, well, maybe, you know, they come from a couple isolated incidents. And we were like, oh, we wonder if there's enough, you know, sexual harassment for us to do a whole season. And by the time we had finished our research, our research doc was 30 pages long. And so your research obviously was very thorough uh, in your podcast, uh, which is a series. You have uh, interviews with uh, the various uh, individuals that were subject to harassment. They talk about their experiences. They talk about uh, what they went through, some of which goes back years and years, uh, some of which is, is more, uh, more recent. Uh, so it is, provides a very compelling story because you're hearing from the actual victims themselves. How did you go about uh, finding uh, the victims and what kind of uh, willingness did you have from them to come appear on your podcast and talk about their stories? Right. So almost all of the survivors that we hear from uh, in the podcast are members of the sexual harassment working group. And um, these women and men uh, were unfortunately already outed in the press, uh, oftentimes when, you know, the, the scandal broke. So their stories are already public and now they have shifted into this uh, advocacy role. Um, so we contacted them and a lot of them were really comfortable speaking about it. And even though, you know, their stories were public information and in the press already, they'd never really told their stories like this before in this format. Um, so we were really fortunate that, 
there was already um, a robust group of, of people who had found each other and were comfortable um, enough and trusted us enough to share uh, very intimate details of what they experienced. To talk about some of those, because it really was very compelling, but let's start with a little background. Your, your initial podcast in the series uh, talks about something called the Bear Mountain Compact. Uh, tell us about what the Bear Mountain Compact is and, and what that uh, signifies. Sure. So the Bear Mountain Compact is this idea that what happens in Albany stays in Albany. So this goes back for decades and decades. And it starts with the idea that, you know, Albany is very removed from New York City, from a lot of the more populated areas of the state where some of the most powerful lawmakers are coming from, right? So New York City lawmakers are away for session days. You know, they're staying in a hotel room. They're away from their wives, away from their their children. And it's this idea that it's sort of an all boys club. And, you know, for decades and decades, the idea was what happens north of Bear Mountain stays north of Bear Mountain and our wives south don't have to know about it. So this started back in the 60s and 70s with this culture of, you know, prostitutes in hotel lounges and everyone smoking cigars and sharing drinks and, you know, talking about what's going on in the legislature. And as time developed, it led to a more pervasive culture of sexual harassment that, you know, the Bear Mountain Compact isn't as strong today as it was 20 or 30 years ago, but you still see the legacy of that culture in Albany. Well, and and you say Albany, and I know that's shorthand for the legislature um, and the the people that uh, are in and around the legislature, because ac- actually Albany is a very nice place, um, not any more harassing than I think any place else. But uh, Albany is shorthand for when you say Albany, we're shorthand for uh, the New York State Legislature. Of course, uh, you talk about one one of the first uh, interviews that you have is with uh, Elizabeth Crothers, who um, was involved in a situation with uh, Michael Boxley uh, that uh, that led to the uh, quote from Sheldon Silver called, uh, where he says he wants to protect the integrity of the institution. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that meant uh, and why that was so significant. So Elizabeth Crothers was a young uh, staffer in Albany in 2001, and she accused Assembly Council Michael Boxley of raping her. And at the time, uh, and since the 80s at least, the sexual harassment policy for the New York State Assembly was designed so that all claims went through Sheldon Silver's office. He was the speaker for many decades and um, has been you know, convicted. I think he might have a new trial for corruption charges. And when Elizabeth, you know, experienced this, she went to Sheldon Silver's office and said, you know, Michael did this to me. And he said, well, you know, Michael has a very different story. And Michael was the was working in the office that was supposed to investigate her claim. You know, the person who ultimately investigated her claim, Bill Collins, was you know, working for Michael Boxley. And it very much turned into, you know, he said, she said, Elizabeth didn't go to the, the she didn't file a police report rather. Um, and ultimately Sheldon Silver was the, the decider of this. And, you know, it's no mistake that the assembly harassment policy was designed in this way. Um, and, you know, Elizabeth told us, and she said for many years that Sheldon Silver 
said, you know, my first priority is to protect the integrity of the institution. And, you know, we can't prove that he said that, but the assembly harassment policy for many decades did reflect that sentiment. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite a shocking statement to hear from the Speaker of the Assembly, not that they would try to protect the integrity of the institution, but that would be used somehow as a shield against someone that is uh, claiming sexual harassment. You would think that the integrity of the institution would be protected by not having this kind of harassment uh, in the institution. Right. And, you know, you see over and over after Elizabeth's case with uh, the Vito Lopez scandal and all of the scandals that followed afterwards that the same process happened. It went through the council's office and it went through Speaker Silver again and again and again. His main priority was sort of sweeping it under the rug and making sure that the legislature itself, you know, was void of these scandals, while at the same time, these women were never given the justice that they deserved. Yes, and I want to get into those other uh, those other feature items as well. Uh, but s- speaking with this first one, you know what was interesting to me in your podcast was when Elizabeth was talking about what her job was and the line between working from nine to five and then also attending, you know, social events in the evening, uh, perhaps uh, fundraiser events. Uh, perhaps meeting with uh, legislators and other people involved in the legislature uh, after hours, that that was all kind of expected and part of the job and part of uh, what you needed to do to succeed. So there was this kind of blurring of your day job and then these activities in the evening, which would also kind of be part of your day job. Talk a little bit about the kind of uh, conflict that this caused for, especially for young uh, staff members. Right. So we've heard about this from probably every survivor that we've spoken to. Um, This is, you know, Eliana Kayser in episode four articulates this perfectly. She was a chief of staff and, and she describes how this is the life. If you want to move up in civil service, you have to be on call 24-7, which means the legislator can call you, text you at any time of the evening or on the weekends. Um, And, you know, oftentimes that's work-related. That's, hey, this constituent called, this has to get taken care of. But electeds who, you know, abuse their power for sexual harassment can use that um, expectation to be messaging, um, you know, staff on Facebook late at night or emailing them or saying, you know, call me um, at this time, you know, tell me you're excited to come to work tomorrow. And um, that that lifestyle is abused in so many ways. You know, um, another thing that comes to mind is this issue that still is an issue in Albany today of session days in Albany. If you have staff in your district office, you need them to come to Albany. If you're a low-level elected official, you don't have that much money to put them up in a hotel room. Maybe you're renting an apartment. Maybe they're in one bedroom and you're in another. And, you know, it's totally inappropriate for young female staffers to be staying in the same apartment or the same hotel room as elected officials. But that's how the system is designed and that's how the budget works. And that that is still an issue today. Right. And on top of that, you also have that sort of nightlife culture that you were talking about. Right. So the idea that 
after work ends at five o'clock, you know, we have to go to this happy hour to meet with these lobbyists. And then after that, we're going uh, to the Democratic Club to meet with these characters. You know, it is just an endless stream of, you know, what we've heard described as alcohol and food fueled events where everyone from the highest highest members in the legislature down to interns in legislators offices are all sort of mingling and the lines between professionalism and what leads to uh, in several cases, sexual harassment is really, really blurred. And that's sort of what is led to most, if not all of the instances that we're looking into here. A lot of what you have to do if you work in a district office particularly involves working in the evening and, and working on the weekends. So it's not a nine to five job. It's not like you show up to the office, you open the office, you do some work, you leave. You have to staff the member at events, often events that involve alcohol. Um, you have to, you know, go with him to his apartment to drop off, you know, something he needs first thing in the morning um, because it came up after he left the office and he has to have it first thing in the morning. I mean, there are legitimate reasons why you need to be in someone's home or at their home, why you need to be with them at a bar very late at night drinking. Yeah. And two of the two of the podcasts that you had uh, looked into issues involving Vito Lopez. He was an assemblyman um, uh, several years ago. Uh, who had several instances of uh, harassment against staff, his chief of staff in particular. Uh, and you talked to several of uh, these individuals that worked, these women that worked at his in his office, and that the harassment would obviously uh, be pervasive throughout the day uh, and was continuing because when one of these cases would be brought to light and would be uh, – they would bring a complaint, they would be settled, and there would be a non-disclosure. So future people, uh, future staffers, wouldn't necessarily know that this had been going on. The same thing had happened to them uh, before until, you know, years later when they all uh, actually got a chance to sit down together and compare notes. And uh, there was a remarkable similarity in how uh, Assemblyman uh, Lopez conducted himself. But I want to talk a little bit about that whole a, a series of podcasts regarding Vita Lopez because what was most compelling is that the one chief of staff actually recorded the conversations and then shared them with you and, and you played them and they were, are really just uh, very compelling, very disturbing uh, and you can hear what the life is like for this woman who's the chief of staff to Assemblyman Lopez. Talk a little bit about your conversations uh, with her and, and what those recordings meant. Well, you have a good night. You too, Vito. Thank and you I don't, for driving and I, me home. I don't want to hurt you. I know you don't. All right? I think you I really... That's why, that's why I just wanted to talk to you and be honest, because I know that's not what you want. No. I know that. Yeah, well, well no, that you... Yeah, I, I probably have an attraction to you, and I have to deal with that, like you said. That might sound terrible to you, but, you know, that's not the worst thing. If I said I thought you were terrible and ugly, that might even be worse. So you might like that better, but uh, but that's something I would deal with. Right. So Leah started recording um, the harassment she was experiencing when another coworker advised her, you know, no one is going to believe you. And actually, after she did report um, 
Vito Lopez's counsel said, you know, she was the aggressor because look at these text messages. But he'd made her send those text messages. So luckily, she had these recordings that ultimately led to, you know, him being reprimanded by uh, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics. But, um, you know, this podcast and, you know, you can hear those recordings in episode three is the first time that anyone besides Leah and the investigators and her lawyers um, heard these recordings. And even up until today, there are people in Vito Lopez's old assembly district, which uh, parts of it are now held by um, newly elected assemblywoman. Is she assemblywoman or state senator? Julia Salazar. Um, so, senator. yeah. So state senator Julia Salazar, um, some of her district is actually encompassed by what used to be Vito Lopez's assembly district. And she said in the February hearing, you know, there are people in my district who still love Vito Lopez and don't believe that he was actually a sexual harasser. But, you know, after hearing these clips, it, it that belief, um, it, it's, it's a lot harder to say, you know, I don't I don't believe these people. I understand you want things, uh, you know, rules, professionalism, joint offices and you know, process. I, I like, can't We, we stand. only fight whenever you bring up things that, like, it, I, I feel like what you want from me mm-hmm. is that you want me to be, like, your mistress or something. I yeah. can't do that. No, okay. Like, and, all right. and I, I, I don't understand why you keep bringing it up. Like, we get we get past it. We, we like, start working on issues. We're, we're a good team. And then, like you, you bring it up again, and and you know, you know, it upsets me. So I don't understand why you keep bringing it up. So, and these clips are what ultimately saved her, like Casey was saying, you know, from be from the case being turned against her. And even with all of this convincing evidence, they were forced to sign a non-disclosure agreement after their case was settled. So from there, you know, she has all of these long, long recordings of this horrible harassment coming from Vito and they have a very solid case but they're not allowed to talk about it with the press they're not allowed to talk about it with their families and so when Vito continues harassing the two women that were hired to replace Leah and Rita you know no one knows that their case happened in the first place so it was allowed to happen along the same playbook exactly the way it played out before and you know the same problems just persisted yes and you know what was so shocking about the uh, the interviews there uh, regarding uh, Assemblyman Lopez was that there really was a playbook. I mean, there is a recording that that you played where he's asking, you know, his staffers to send him text messages. Uh, he specifically requests send me te- text messages in the evening if you're uh, even if you get up in the middle of the night for some reason. I want to hear from you and. You know, it's a little creepy and it's weird. Um, And, uh, you know, he's saying, I just want to know, I want that kind of assurance that you're thinking of me and it helps, you know, promote camaraderie in the office. At least a phone call in the morning and one text at night. And if you go to the bathroom at four in the morning, text me. Say, not that you went to the bathroom, but say, Vito, Looking ahead for tomorrow, something like that. Can you do that? Yes, Vito. And then later you find that this is all part of a plan that when someone claims harassment against him, he introduces all these late night text messages that he's been getting from his staff uh, to show that 
he was really the victim and that uh, they were the aggressor um, was just uh, just shocking that it was so premeditated that this would happen and that he would be accused of harassment. That's exactly right. And so that was exactly the state's defense for Vito as they walked in and Leah says they just put on the table print uh, pages and pages and pages of these texts printed out. And so the only thing that saved her was these recordings in the end. You know, she said she was almost she was losing her hair. She was going insane with the way that they were treating her. And the only thing that ultimately saved her case was the fact that she had these hours and hours of tapes of harassment. Which, by the way, you know, it's not easy to go to work every day and have a recording device in your blazer pocket. She was absolutely terrified that Vito was going to realize that she was recording. And, you know, it didn't make the final cut in the podcast, but at some point, Rita started recording as well. And, you know, it went off in a meeting once and Vito gave her these dagger eyes and was like, what are you doing? You know, like he at the towards the end, um, they think he started to catch on that, you know, he was being recorded. But, um, you know, at, at any moment, you know, something could go wrong or she could take her blazer off. It could fall out. And, you know, she took that risk every single day to compile literally like dozens of hours of recordings and transcribe them for investigators. Right. It, I mean, it's just really diabolical in many ways because, you know, you would if you were to see these text messages, you'd think to yourself, well, why is she sending him a text message and you know late at night? But he's he, he made the request repeatedly, uh, and he told them how important it was, and you know they seemed like they were a little uncomfortable with it, but you could tell from the recordings, even while they were being you know, harassed by uh, this assemblyman, they still, I mean, their demeanor was such that they they really wanted to please him. Um, That was also, they didn't, there wasn't like this anger there. It was just this kind of uh, attempt to to try to neutralize everything. And it, and just the sheer volume of it was, was just um, overwhelming. Right. And something you have to remember is that, um, at least for Leah and Rita, this was their first job in politics, first job out of law school. You know, they had no precedent for how often you should be in touch with your boss when you're working in politics for an elected official. And we've seen that with other serial harassers that we've profiled in the series. You know, they hired women because they found them attractive and no one was checking on those hiring decisions. And they picked people who were very young, who didn't understand, you know, how politics works, what's normal, what's not okay, what those boundary lines are, and exploited that. And then they're in an institution that kind of has a structure in place that that helps perpetuate that. Let's talk a little bit about the the media's role in all this, because, uh, you know, when these complaints were filed, um, there seemed to be a concerted effort now to discredit uh, the victims. And again, something that these victims, these young women, uh, their first uh, job and professional experience, they have no experience in trying to, you know, control the media or, or get their message out properly. Tell us a little bit about how, the, how they were affected by what happened when it was you know, revealed that they were uh, claiming to be a victim in, in these situations. 
Sure. So that sort of fallout didn't happen with Leah and Rita until the next case broke with Tori and Chloe, the next two women who were harassed by Vito. And so when their case sort of broke the news, everyone started to put together that this had happened before. And there was this huge media blow up over, you know, all of these scandals surrounding Vito Lopez and tabloid press, um, you know, reporters from all sorts of different outlets started harassing them. They started showing up at their houses. They started showing up at their jobs, um, going to their parents' blocks and, you know, walking up and down, handing out pictures, asking, have you seen these women or this woman who used to live on the street? And so everyone was was just hounding poor Leah, Rita, Tori, and Chloe, who had just finished these intense investigations and, and lawsuits. And now the tabloid press is hounding them, you know, why are you taking the settlement money? Why are you um, either, if you're supporting Vito Lopez, you might be asking, you know, uh, why are you doing this to Vito Lopez? There were all of these different reporters just absolutely you know, when they're trying to start their lives up, just absolutely deterring the the progress that they were hoping to make after leaving Vito's office. Right. So um, Andrew and I, you know, had a sense that these stories were treated like sex scandals. You know, Vito's office was called a harem by one of the tabloid uh, press situations. Um, and, you know, we didn't want, we, we knew that these people had had really uh, terrible experiences with journalists in the past. And here we are, journalists, you know, a couple years later asking them, can you reopen all of these wounds and share your stories with us? Um, and that's a really, you know, tough thing for people to do. And, you know, just for what, you know, to relive the experience of complete strangers hearing, you know, some really intimate details of, of trauma, literal trauma that they experienced. Um, and we, we did our best to research, you know, how do you interview uh, victims of sexual violence and not re-traumatize them and not, you know, some people have complained to us that the treatment of their stories in the media was actually worse than the harassment they experienced because it never ended because it was all over Google because they were afraid that at their new job, you know, someone would show up and start asking questions, you know, that they'd every time they walked out on the street, someone was there to take a photo of them. So for us, it was so, so, so important to not re-traumatize the people we were interviewing or make them feel like we were just another set of tabloid reporters. Um, and to some extent, we've seen that the New York press score has gotten better. Um, we've heard from survivors who are now advocates that reporters who covered their stories in the past have called them and apologized for the way they treated it. So things are getting better. But, um, you know, the media component is you know, such an important aspect of these survivor stories because it doesn't end when they leave the office. You know, you can hear in your interviews the, you know, that are now after the fact that some of the uh, victims, you know, regret that they weren't more vocal about it. Um, you know, when things like this happen, you know, obviously there's no playbook as to how you respond and how you deal with it and what you report to the police and what you don't report and what you complain about and what you don't. And they were just kind of flying blind. And, you know, I, you can hear that there's a real concern about whether this is something that's just happening to them or is this something that's happening 
you know, going to happen to other people and uh, they're very protective where they feel like if this is going to happen to somebody else, then I do need to speak out. And I think what we're seeing now uh, with the hearings, certainly, and the, the, you know, the victims support group that you mentioned, um, is they're seeing that there's, you know, this is continuing. And if they don't speak out, um, it's going to continue. And the, even though they don't want to be in that position, they, you know, have to speak out in order to make sure that we have some change. Right. I think, um, in some of the stories that we are in the earlier episodes talking about, you see that the biggest problem was the way that sexual harassment was actually dealt with and the way that complaints were actually handled because, a lot of these women did bring their cases forward and, you know, nothing was nothing was done with it. Or Rita um, from episode three talks about how many hoops she had to jump through, how many times she thought she had made a formal complaint. But, you know, then the state official says, oh, now you have to submit it in email or now you have to print it out and mail it to us. Whatever it is, you know, every time they thought they were taking a step forward, it ended up being three more hoops that they had to jump through. So that sort of um, process ends up eventually sort of making you stop and think, is it worth my time if my complaint is just going to be either I'm going to be told it has to be printed out next time or this has to happen or that has to happen or if it's not going to be taken seriously and not going to be dealt with, that sort of leads to this attitude of, you know, why would I why would I file a complaint at all? Right. So I have to make an important distinction here. Before 2013, when Vito Lopez um, had to resign over the scandal, if you had a sexual harassment complaint, let's say you're a low-level scheduler, your first person you'd probably go to is your chief of staff. Some chief of staffs were protecting their elected official and did absolutely nothing about it. You know, in the episode, um, in episode six, we hear about a chief of staff who said, you know, that's just how Dennis is. If you don't like it, get a different job. In episode five, we have a situation where low-level staffer tells her chief of staff, chief of staff is like, okay, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to help you get out of this office. If you want to report, I'll help you with it. But she didn't know what to do because the chief of staffs were not trained on, you know, what to do if the elected official is harassing staffers. So, you know, in almost every case that we've looked at from before 2013, people call assembly council. The person that picks up the phone in Assembly Council was a man named Bill Collins. Bill Collins is the same person who investigated Elizabeth Crother's complaint in 2001, which resulted in Sheldon Silver saying um, reportedly, I'm my priority is to protect the institution. So that's pre-2013. After the Vito Lopez scandal, the Assembly hired an attorney, an employment attorney named Rick Rosine. He overhauled the entire assembly harassment policy. And in episode six, you see what that looks like, what that reporting process looks like. So now when you report, the claim goes to the assembly ethics committee who retains counsel. It's not uh, Rick Rosine anymore. It's other counsel. And they do an independent investigation into what happened. And then, you know, the member could be reprimanded. They'll have 
uh, you know, climate uh, reports and check-ins. They have to go through extra supplementary training. So things are different now, but the law itself hasn't changed. And that's where we're at right now is trying to, you know, raise the severe or pervasive standard and get rid of the Farragher-Ellerth defense, which basically makes employers not liable for what their employees do. So advocates will say there is still a lot of work to be done, even though the assembly's harassment policy has been overhauled. So we've we've made some we've made progress in large part due to these uh, victims that ha- have spoken out, and uh, the legislature has changed some of its internal policies. Uh, this over this past year, we've had. Uh, I'm going to say a relatively high-profile legislative hearing. Uh, we've got um, a lot of new uh, people in the Senate, especially uh, that are sensitive to this issue. And so we had a relatively high-profile legislative hearing uh, on sexual harassment in the legislature. So let's talk a little bit about some of the legislation that is is pending that uh, might go a little bit further in providing uh, assistance and in preventing this type of conduct. Right. So the bill on the table right now that the legislature is debating, again, like Casey said, addresses two of the most um, prominent issues, uh, the severe and pervasive standard, which basically says in order for harassment to be deemed um inappropriate enough to be handled this way. It has to be severe or pervasive enough, which sort of sends this idea that, you know, some harassment is worse than others or, um, you know, this harassment isn't serious enough for us to be handling in this in this way. And so that's one of the first issues that uh, the, the current bill that's up for debate would address is lifting that severe pervasive standard. Right. So, The current bill changes the severe or pervasive standard to a petty slights and trivial inconveniences. Under the severe pervasive standard, someone could grope a woman at work, you know, pull on her bra strap and, you know, say lewd things to her like five times, for example, um, and not be convicted of harassment or be, you know, reprimanded under the current law. And that standard is based on a 1980 Supreme Court case. What the new law changes it to is petty slights or trivial inconveniences. You know, there's no more of this one free grope rule where you can just do it once and get away with it. Um, so this it's raising the standard of what you can bring to court. Um, again, this bill has not passed yet um, as of the date we're recording, but um, advocates are pushing for it in Albany. Well, uh, that's uh, that's that's really been uh, wonderful talking to you uh, and listening to your podcast. I recommend everyone to listen to this podcast series. It is very compelling. It's uh, a prickly politics podcast uh, with Casey Candela and Andrew Seeger. It's called Women in the Room. Uh, it's certainly uh, something that uh, everyone should have an opportunity to listen to. Uh, like I said, it is very compelling, and you'll want to listen to to all of it. I'm glad, of course, that we're we're ending on a on a more positive note. That there's been changes in the legislature, and there's going to be hopefully more change coming uh, with this legislation. So thank you both uh, for your time here on Miranda Warnings. Thank you, Dave. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. And now we do have, this is a very serious issue, but we do have a a lighthearted feature called Movie, Book, or Music on Miranda Warnings. If you could share any sort of uh, artistic performance with us that you'd like our listeners to know more about. 
Sure, I'll go first. Um, so I just finished a book called uh, Filling the Void, uh, Emotion, Capitalism, and Social Media. And so it's this really interesting look into the way that journalism has sort of evolved over the past 10 or so years with the introduction of the internet and with social media as this really powerful force, uh, force in not only politics, but just in every way we live our lives. And so it's interesting looking at the way that we've reported on this story. A lot of what we're doing through Prickly Politics is through Twitter, through SoundCloud, sharing our episodes on Facebook, you know, really reaching our audience in as many ways as we can. And the book sort of looks at the ways that Facebook and Twitter and other platforms are designed to sort of keep us hooked on social media. And, you know, as a young person who might have grown up with this stuff, I have a really interesting view on it, but someone else from an older generation might also get a lot out of it to sort of understand how these forces are becoming so powerful in the world we live in. Great. So the book is called Filling the Void. Correct. And the author is uh, Marcus Gilroy Ware. And uh, Casey? Right. So I recently saw uh, Jane Eyre, the ballet at the Metropolitan Opera. I've never seen a ballet before. Uh, I read Jane Eyre, huge fan. And um, it was really wonderful. The uh, choreographer director took uh, a very feminist take on it. No surprise there. And uh, what was really interesting to me is, you know, the dancer Jane is followed around by, you know, a, um, a group of six male dancers called the D-Men. And they are considered to represent death demons. And they follow her around for the whole show and kind of plague her and keep her from uh, for fulfilling her destiny. And in the end of the show, even though, of course, you know, if she marries Rochester, spoiler, um, she the show ends with the ballerina playing Jane, you know, standing alone in a spotlight. She's finally shaken off all these all these demons, all these demon. So um, it was a really wonderful show. And I am um, I'm glad to have finally seen a ballet. Well, great. Jane Eyre, the ballet. Um, so they've uh, they took the book and turned it into a ballet. Uh, I'm still working on getting the Miranda Warnings podcast turned into a ballet. <laughs> <laughs> Call us back Have when that night. happens. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be great. It'll be great. So, uh, Casey and Andrew, thank you very much for being with us on Miranda Warnings, and good luck with the rest of your podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.